Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. This week on Weather Geeks, what's harder, predicting the weather or predicting people? Social scientists are studying the battle between meteorologists and the public when it comes to forecasters issuing warnings versus the public's response, or lack thereof, to those warnings. One party calls the other complacent, the other accuses them of always being wrong. The result? A standoff when it comes to how the weather community both provides and digests potentially life-saving information. In a field where stakes are high and the metric used for success versus failure is death, these scientists are studying the social science behind severe warnings. I am joined today by Dr. Jen Henderson and Dr. Julie DeMuth, and we'll get into their credentials here in a moment, but thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you, Marshall. It's a pleasure. I am Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And let me just introduce Jen Henderson. She's a postdoctoral fellow with the Cooperative Institute for Research and Environmental Sciences in Boulder. And Dr. Julie DeMuth is a research scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research. That's NCAR for those weather geeks that know the, the uh, acronym. And she's in the Mesoscale and Microscale Meteorology Lab. Uh, she's also with the Weather Risk and Decisions in Society Research Group. So with that, let's just dive right in. Uh, both of you are in the weather community, so you know what goes on out there in terms of we make good weather forecasts most of the time, but how it's used, perceived, and understood, that necessarily uh, has all kinds of outcomes. So first, let's define social scientists, because we throw that term around, social scientists, but there are actually different sort of disciplines within that. So, um, Jen, define social scientists for us. That's, I'm so glad that you're doing this up front. I do think that there's a lot of um, misconceptions about what social scientists can and do um, in their research. And there's a bunch of different types of social scientists who work in the applied fields and sort of the basic research fields as well. So um, I think of social scientists as people who try to understand sort of humans and how humans interact with their world, whether that's other people, whether that's the environment, whether it's both other people and the environment. And they come from a variety of different perspectives drawing on different kinds of literatures, theories, um, methods, much like scientists. There's so many different kinds of scientists. So I think we're very similarly diverse. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I, I know colleagues that work on communication aspect of the, uh, aspects of this, the psychology behind how people respond to a warning. Uh, you know, there are people that work on colors and cues. So I, I wanted to make sure we touched on that because, I mean, you know, it is kind of buzzwordy now to say, hey, social scientists are working on weather and communication. But I, I, th I want to make sure that uh, the fields that you, you all are working in get that justice. Julie, Julie, you want to add to that? 
Yeah, I would love to add to that. I think what you just said, Marshall, is so important because when we think about um, even meteorology, and we know how heterogeneous meteorologists are, the different ways that they specialize, you can extend that to any of the different social science disciplines. So there are many disciplines. There's anthropology, there's communication, there's economics, psych, and sociology. Jen has a specialty in science and technology studies. So when we talk about social science, we're really talking about all those different disciplines. But then it's also important to recognize that even within a discipline, there's so many different areas of expertise. Yeah, I, I would agree. And we're talking to Dr. Julie DeMuth and uh, Jen Henderson at uh, University of Colorado Boulder's radio station, KVCU. So shout out to KVCU for allowing you to crash the party a little bit, talk to us a little bit about weather geeks and some of the things we like to geek out on. Now, as we are taping this, we see a major hurricane, a hurricane lane approaching Hawaii. And even with this particular event, there's some messaging challenges because it's a Category 5 storm. It's the first time that a storm this strong has been that close to the Hawaiian Islands. It that looks like right now, based on the models, it may not make a direct landfall, but the impacts of this storm are going to be felt because the islands are just to the right of the eye. Uh, I think this is a good test case for us to talk about some of the things I want to talk about. How would you or how would you all recommend messaging this particular type of storm where uh, it doesn't look like it will make a direct hit on the Hawaiian Islands, but certainly the impacts are going to be there. That That's really at the heart of some of what we want to talk about today. So either one of you feel free to dive in, into that one. Oh boy. Okay. Well, this is Julie. Um, this is a great, huge topic that we study in a lot of different ways. I think what you just mentioned, that word impact is so important because in meteorology, we tend to study the phenomenon itself and we have ways that we can characterize the phenomenon itself. And so we do that in terms of the um, maximum sustained winds or what the storm surge levels might be like, um, or maybe even how much rain is going to fall. And that's an important piece of that puzzle. But what people really need to do is take that information and translate it to what does it mean for them? What does it actually translate to for how much rain is going to be at their house? Or is their home going to be flooded? Are their roads going to be flooded? Are they going to be flooded for multiple days? If they evacuate, do they need to take all of their um, medical supplies with them or for how many days? And so that's the challenge that we really face is how do we really couple those two important pieces of information, what we understand about the phenomenon not self, and then message that to people, but also couple that with what do they need to know in terms of how it's going to affect them and what they should do. And in addition to that, you have, you know, sort of the temporality and spatiality of the event that's changing. So as the... Okay, let, let, let's um, let's um, br bring that to the Weather Geeks listener that may not necessarily understand what you mean by temporality and spatiality. Yeah, so changes in time and space. So as the storm approaches, so how does the threat change and shift over time? So three days out versus one day out versus several hours out, that's sort of temporality. In terms of the um, spatial, you know, where is it? landing? Is it is it going to come close and then sort of veer off? Is it going to have a direct impact? Is it going to, you know, do an about face and kind of head back out into the water? So, and, and as it comes closer, where and who is going to be impacted? So is it going to hit, you know, shallow shores? Is it going to hit a, a populated area? Um, and then you have to encounter those same kinds of things that Julie's talking about. How have people experienced these storms before? And um, what are their lives like? And how are they thinking about their own risk in this situation? 
Yeah. I, which I want to pivot now to something again in recently in the news, Backstreet Boys. Uh, there was a recent event where um, there were clearly uh, some examples or possibilities of storms in the area. Uh, apparently, there were some warnings about the particular weather, but some people had general mission tickets or wanted to stay in line for those tickets for that. And I think there were uh, tens of people that ended up getting hurt. And this gets to this question of, the why don't the experts at least say why don't the people or policymakers or decision makers listen to the forecast and the information that's out there versus the public which always says well it must be nice to be meteorologists where you're wrong all of the time or 50 percent of the time that's the <laughs> battle that we all face and you all are you know it well where where are we in that are we wrong all of the time have we been wrong enough that there's a cry wolf syndrome in the public or are are there reasons why the public just has a, a sort of a, a life or opportunity cost where they're willing to take certain risks because what they're doing in their day-to-day lives is just more important at the time <laughs> that, julie julie you take that one I was just looking at Jen, hoping that she would take that one. Um, It's a loaded question there, but it's one that I think we need to deal with because, you know, we face it. Yeah. Well, this has it's a great question. And I think there's so many different pieces to the answer. So I will start. And then I know let's unpack them all. Let's unpack them all. We've got the time. Jen will really add to this with her articulate views. I think a couple of things. One is I always draw this analogy with medicine and with public health, which is that A doctor, I'm sure, has their idea of if a person has some sort of health issue or is at risk of having some health issue, maybe something that's more chronic, but even things that can be acute, the doctor probably has in his or her mind what they think that patient should do. At the end of the day, what a patient does is based on that information that they have, but also what is it that they value? What are their experiences? What other factors um, really shape and and maybe even in some cases inhibit what they want to do? And so I think if we take that and apply it to these kinds of situations, it's really helpful because people can get information about a weather forecast. And of course, one thing we haven't hit on yet, which has been kind of implied in everything we're talking about, is this amazing issue of uncertainty. There is limits to predictability. And even when we have a clear sense of when something might happen, even if a warning is out, there is still uncertainty about whether that event is going to unfold. That goes back to Jen's sort of um, spatiality and temporality aspect, how bad it's going to be, whether it's going to intensify, whether it's going to weaken. And people are aware of those uncertainties through their experiences with weather. And so even if they're under a warning, there still isn't um, a clear 100% chance that it's going to affect somebody in a certain way. I think we start also getting into these issues of, for certain types of events like severe storms, people have a lot of experiences. And those experiences, you can draw a distribution around them. Sometimes those storms are really intense and sometimes they're really weak. Maybe they get hailed on. Maybe there's lightning. Um, Maybe there's less of that issue or maybe it's farther away. And so they're probably pulling all of those experiences and the uncertainty and how bad it was or wasn't in the past into that decision making. And then when they're standing in line, again, there are these things things that they also value. Maybe they've invested a lot of money into these tickets and that would pose a great loss for them. Maybe this is their favorite band in the world. I have bands that I would stand in a thunderstorm and go see, especially something <laughs> like that where people really love their music. Who are, who you know? are, the, who are those bands? <laughs> I'm not sure no, that I want to say I'm, that on no, air. I'm, I'm serious. I would probably do that for um, The Head and the Heart. I would do that for Jack Johnson. I would definitely do that. I probably Actually, so I have been in bad weather for 311 before. So there All are right. a couple of bands. That's that cool. I, no, I, I love I love music, so I just wanted to get a, a sample of your music taste there. <laughs> I would totally do it for Depeche Mode. <laughs> 
not sure I would do it for the Backstreet Boys, but I mean, that it's happens not, around here all the time agreed. at Red Rocks. So <laughs> I want it that way. Not. All right. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, so, so you're saying then that people do value sort of, they have these sort of personalized values on their experience at the moment. You know, the, the cost or the personal cost of the tickets, the time of standing in line. I mean, I've written about this before in Forbes when I say that, you know, we have this turnaround, don't drown. We clearly see a flooded road, but uh, as, as a colleague of all of ours, Castle Williams, one of our graduate students at University of Georgia has talked about the value proposition of that that parent getting to their child's daycare may be more important to them and they'll take the risk of driving through that road because they don't they, they don't want to get to their kid. Exactly. Yeah. Jen, do you have anything yeah, you want to add? Jen, what do you want to add to the conversation here? Well, I was just going to say I can't um, really add too much to what Julie has said. I think she said it perfectly on that side of like how people are thinking about and processing information and that that's dynamic as well as the weather is dynamic. So you're dealing with multiple complexity on top of complexity here. But I think you raise an interesting question, too, about sort of the forecasting side and the forecasters themselves, and the meteorologists and how they're thinking about, um, you know, the how people are responding. And so I think one of the things that's interesting in this community is to think about our expectations uh, as experts about how the public behaves. And so to go back to Julie's um, analogy of the medical community and public health, which I think is perfect for this, the doctor can sort of give all the advice, give all the information that they can. But at the end of the day, they really have to relinquish that sort of um, sense of either control or sense of like wanting to follow up with the patient and, you know, try to convince them to take certain actions. They can do everything they can. But at the end of the day, you know, the the sort of individual's um, choices and decisions are in large part up to them. As if they've got as much information as they can have, they've gotten it as many ways as they can. Um, and we're not sure people are getting information in all the ways that they can, so I don't want to discount that. But, but if they have a good understanding and they're and they're making these choices, we sort of have to step back and let people make choices and recognize that that's part of um, what we expect from experts in our other aspects of our lives too. Yeah, that's a good point. Actually, I, I uh, talked to the uh, administrator of NASA, Jim Bridenstine, recently for the Weather Geeks podcast. And we were talking about this notion that some people say that you could have too much lead time for a tornado. Uh, the average time right now is 13, 14 minutes or so. And I've heard arguments that one one hour could be too long because people might start playing a video game or cooking and say, oh, I've got 45 minutes before it's going to hit us. Uh, but he made the point that, you know, people are big girls and boys. Give them the information and let them make the decisions for themselves. Do, do you agree with that? This is Julie. I absolutely agree with that. I mean, again, going back to this analogy, can you imagine if a doctor knew you had some diagnosis but wasn't sure that you were going to make some decision that he or she thought was sort of ideal and then so held off on telling you that information? That would probably be frustrating for you. And I think this goes to Jen's point that I, we tend to focus only on one outcome or maybe one dependent variable, and that might be whether people take shelter from a tornado. But there's so many other points that are antecedent in that process. So they might information seek, they might information share, they might take that information and give it to somebody who wouldn't have gotten that information directly from, let's say, their NOAA weather radio or their phone app. They might go outside and assess the risk. They might um, do any other number of things that then lead them that we know are part of how people assess their risk and make a decision. And so giving them time to be able to do those things and also evaluate that uncertainty that is inevitably associated with the event so that they can ultimately make a decision for themselves, 
factoring in all these other things that might be important to them about whether to shelter or not, or whether their shelter is safe enough. I mean, we have done a lot of work with members of the public who are more vulnerable, who live in manufactured homes or who are at work or any other issues. And in some cases, they just don't have a safe place. We actually have great, really powerful quotes from people who have said, there is no safe place. And so if they have longer lead time, that gives them the opportunity to find a place that maybe isn't the ultimate safe place, but is safer relative to where they are. Yes. Ditto. All of that. <laughs> that's, <laughs> I think that's really well put, Julie. Uh, I think the other you know, piece of this, too, is in terms of thinking about you know, the forecasters um, and, and the work that we've done with some of these communities, even the forecasters themselves acknowledge and are frustrated by the fact that for some folks, there is no safe place on the current timeline. So I think giving people the choice and the time to make those decisions um, and give them added time in this case can equate to added space, places that they can go, new new places that they can seek out, um, distance that they can get from the storm. Um, I think that even the meteorologists um, that I've talked to wish that there was more time for people to react given those kinds of circumstances. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. And welcome back to the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and we're going beyond the polygon today, the social science behind severe weather warnings. And we're talking with Dr. Jen Henderson and Dr. Julie DeMuth, and they are both experts in the intersection of social science and weather. And they are coming to us from KVCU radio station in University of Colorado, Boulder. Thank you both for joining us. Our pleasure. Thank you. Now, you have both mentioned the medical field and used analogies to it. One of the things that I want to kind of touch upon now is this notion of, quote unquote, dumbing down the message. Uh, what strategies and communication can we learn from the medical field? Are, are, there, are there things that they do? Because one of the things, you know, I got into this conversation on my social media page the other day with someone, you know, a friend of mine was saying, well, you know, I don't think people really, you know, will get out of line for a concert or, you know, with the duck boat incident in Missouri recently. Yeah, you know, they, those people probably have seen storms before. So, you know, there's enough bad information that meteorologists give that, um, you know, they just don't trust you. And I said, well, you know, it's interesting because there are a lot of people that are predicting the future in our lives every day, everything from doctors to our portfolio managers for our, managing our retirement funds. And I, I don't know that people give up on the medical community if there's a, a mixed misdiagnosis or give up on their financial planner if a stock tanks for a day. Why is there so much pressure on meteorologists uh, who are right more of the time than not? It's just that people tend to remember the occasional bad forecast. So how do we use strategies from other fields to kind of get us over the hump or can we? 
Yeah, I think this is a great question. Um, one of the things that I, I think about when I, I'm asked this kind of question is the parity between the two fields themselves. So medicine is kind of the science of understanding the physiology of the body and illness and disease. But then public health is this entire other sort of um, complementary uh, set of disciplines that study how people understand their risks, how why people take actions that can lead to public campaigns like washing hands or, you know, not spreading disease in certain ways. And, and so I think one of the things that I think we can learn from is, you know, the meteorologists and the experts in the, in the sort of physical science in our field are trying to also do the things that the, the doctors are doing, but we don't have the same uh, broad infrastructure of like public health as we might uh, want in weather. So something like public weather, um, for lack of a better phrase, what's the equivalent that allows us to build out that capacity to really... Um, understand the human aspects of it and what are the convincing messages? What are the kinds of languages that, uh, you know, that people need to understand their risk in? How are they thinking about the images that they're seeing about illness and the the kind of stereotypes? How we don't have, um, we have social scientists generally doing this, but we don't really have this sort of uh, I don't know, I don't want to say unified, but a real kind of cohort that's bigger than just a small sample of social scientists within the weather community. So I think that would be one place to sort of start a conversation about parity. Yeah, yeah that's a, that's an interesting point. I think you're right about that as well. I, I want to unpack some language here because we, we talked about this notion of you versus them or us versus them uh, with who's complacent versus who's wrong or right. So I want to put four words on the table and let you both respond to them or individually respond or break them up. So the first word that I want to put on the table is complacent because we often hear our field, the meteorologists say people are complacent. I even tweeted the other day a question saying, are people desensitized from weather warnings? And they're getting so many of them on their phone, on Twitter and on other places that they're, they've even either become desensitized or complacent. So what do you mean in your studies when you think of the word complacent? <laughs> Go ahead, Julie. Oh, boy. I'm going to defer to her. She's thinking a lot about this right now. Well, I... It's funny because Jen's deferring to me, but I feel like I'm going to steal a phrase that she said that has really resonated with me, which is that if we assume that people are complacent about the weather, then by that, if we want them to attend to the weather, then that means they have to be complacent in some other aspect of their lives. And so I think this is a big issue, which is that people have all sorts of things that they need to attend to, and they can't possibly attend to them all to the degree that we might want in this really systematic way. I mean, there's a lot in the cognitive psych literature that talks about how people um, process stuff heuristically. They use these mental shortcuts or their cognitive misers or some of these other um, ideas that have come out of that that discipline because we know people can't attend to everything perfectly and process it. And especially in this day and age where there's a lot of things increasingly, I think, that are competing for people's attention. So I think partly we have to really recognize what... Um, domain we're referring to when we're talking about complacency and recognize that weather isn't the only thing that is going on in people's lives. I use this analogy, I and mean, it's true, and it's kind of funny. Um, I care so much about the weather because this is the community I came out of, but I was a long time ago in one of my classes on science communication, and that's when I realized that there was somebody in my class who was so passionate about 
passionate about invasive species and invasive weeds. And he was on this campaign to make sure that anytime people were in Wyoming, they needed to get rid of the thistle and they needed to like report this kind of stuff. And this was his big thing. And I realized I was like, oh, I don't care about your weeds. You probably don't care about the weather, you know? And so everybody has this thing that they are passionate about or that they're paying attention to. And that might be family. That might be their jobs. That might be something that's going on with their parents who are ill, any number of things. It might be the nice weather that's outside, any of these things. And so I think we really have to recognize that there's just a lot of things that are competing for people's attention. Um, For me, this also touches on what I mentioned a few minutes ago, which is that this idea of complacency comes with some expectation that there's one single thing that people should be doing with that information. And I think recognizing that there's a spectrum, that there are multiple dependent variables, there's multiple things that people can do, helps us realize that even if people don't take some protective action or take protective action in the ways that we think they should or the times that they think that we should, doesn't mean that they're not doing anything. They might be paying attention to the weather. They might be seeking additional information. They might be sharing it. And those are all really valid responses that we need to honor as well. Absolutely. And I'd say one thing that comes to mind as I'm listening to you articulate all these wonderful sort of ideas about how we think about the word like complacent, it strikes me that in some ways complacent kind of functions as a placeholder for things we don't see people do or things we don't understand about them. So when we say somebody's being complacent, in in some ways, I feel like maybe we're asking ourselves, well, why aren't they taking actions? Because we don't see the actions they're taking. They're not taking the action we're looking for. So there, it, it's it opens up a space to have these questions about, well, what does complacent mean? Are they actually complacent? And large, largely from the interviews and the focus groups we've done, people are not complacent. They're all taking action. It's just not the actions we'd expect or that we can see. We have to ask them about how they're processing this information. Um, the other thing I want to just mention quickly about the word complacent and why sometimes it troubles me Um, sort of like the word wrong, is those two words imply blame in very stark terms. And I think that uh, is not necessarily the conversation we want to be having between uh, the public and the experts, because I think there's, uh, at least from the expert side and the forecasters and meteorologists, I know there's a deep level of care and concern for the people that they're forecasting for. And so I don't think that they're trying to blame people the public, but that word implies that I think there's something else going on there. Yeah. Now that's a great, that's a great point you touched upon there. You know, when, whenever there are these natural disasters like Harvey or Maria, uh, rightfully we think the emergency managers and the first responders, and we very much should do that. But I think some people that get left out of that conversation of thanks is the meteorologist because boy, there's a lot of pressure on making forecasts that have people's lives at stake. And every meteorologist that I know that does it, uh, they really do care about lives. So I want to thank you for making that point. And I want to sort of pivot now to the word wrong because you brought that up. This is really an interesting one, the the word wrong. For example, a lot of times people will say meteorologists are wrong when in fact they don't necessarily understand what percent chance of rain means. They think that a 20% chance of rain means it probably is not going to rain where they are. And, uh, you know, that percent chance of rain is related to a confidence that it's going to rain over a certain area. Um, the same thing with the, the the hurricane cone of uncertainty. People misunderstand that. Some people think that it just means there's a chance only down the center of that cone. And if it doesn't go right down the center, the forecast was wrong. So, what is your sort of perception of what the word wrong means and does it mean different things to different people? Jen? <laughs> We're looking at each other here. This is, these are such great questions and I really appreciate them. Uh, I think, you know, wrong is, 
it, it is, I think you're right, that it is a different kind of word for different people, what wrong means. And part of it is because they are personalizing the weather in so many different ways, especially when it's upsetting uh, an individual. They've made plans or there's something that they're counting on. And so they're trying to, um, you know, measure a certain expectation of what they can experience in their day with what they're hoping they experience in their day. And so I think when that when that sort of busts, so to speak, uh, their, you know, way of thinking about it is to be wrong. Um, but I think that sort of the same process is probably happening with uh, the word wrong is happening with the word complacent. I think you're right, Marshall, that there's a lot of lack of understanding about how forecasting works, how complex it is, um, predictability issues. Um, I think that's part of it, that people are not as familiar with the uh, weather world as they might be with the medical world, for example, where uh, we all experience illness, but are maybe familiar with doctors, you know, from television movies, from uh, other uh, other kinds of media, and also maybe from experience of knowing people in our worlds who are doctors who talk about that more publicly. Um, so I think that there is a lack of sort of understanding about what it means to be a forecaster and a meteorologist and how difficult and challenging that job is. But it's, of course, much more complex than that. And I'm going to let Julie speak to some yeah. of that. So two other things I would add to it, the great points that Jen just made. One is that in meteorology, and I think this is true in all fields, but very much in meteorology, we have very specific technical definitions that go along with some of the information we provide, like POP. It requires that people understand that it refers to some amount of rain over some area within some forecast period. And so it's asking a lot to ask the members of the public to know that how we evaluate the reliability of a probabilistic or a set of probabilistic forecasts is conditioned on those criteria being met. Is That's just asking a lot for people who are just getting this information on a daily basis. And you can think about that with something like POP, where they're getting all the time. But when you extend that into the kinds of weather forecasts that might um, be tied to more extreme weather, like hurricanes or tornadoes, asking them to understand all those technical aspects is really asking a lot of them. So I think a key piece is to try to explain in some cases what the information does and doesn't mean to help them kind of make sense of that information. Um, again, I still think it's important to communicate then what that what they should be doing with that information. And that goes back to some public health lessons that have come out of that community that we can touch back on. Um, and then I think the other piece is that even when members of the public characterize forecasters as wrong, I think that's just sort of a shorthand because you'll have people who will say forecasters are wrong or this forecast specifically was wrong. But at the same time, they're still going back to that forecast source or they're still turning to that information in some way. So it, they're getting some value out of that, which maybe they can't articulate. And so I think even when we have people who kind of in a really pithy way say, oh, forecasters are wrong all the time, I don't know that they actually really believe that. And part of our job is to sort of drill down and tease out what it is that they think is wrong or what value they do get out of that forecast, forecast information in a way that you just can't get from sort of that surface quick statement that they would make. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. And welcome back to 
the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard talking with Dr. Jen Henderson and Dr. Julie DeMuth about all things related to social science of weather and warnings. We're talking about certain words, complacent and wrong. There's a word now that I want to throw at you, warning. This is an interesting one to me. And it, it kind of links back to something that one of you said a few minutes ago. And this is about people's understanding of the terms warning. I mean, we have all of these technical things that we use in meteorology. We have the cone of uncertainty. We have the warning polygon for tornadoes. We have pop or, or percent chance of precipitation. These things mean many things to us. But, I mean, do, do the public... Should they understand those things the way that we feel that they should if they have not been taught what they mean? Uh, someone asked me, someone told me the other day on Facebook, says, oh, you always get onto the public saying we don't know what percent chance of rain means. Or uh, even a more specific example, I mentioned the other day that there, I was out at my son's football game and people were walking around and there was still anvil lightning or what we call blue sky lightning around, but people were just walking around. And a friend of mine said, well, I've never been told what that is. How, how do I know what that is or what pop means? So where's the disconnect between us just throwing out these terms like polygons or pop and the public's notion of what they actually mean? How, how did we, where did the disconnect come from? Well, I think Jen has some great thoughts on this, especially also even how forecasters themselves might use the phrase warning in multiple ways. So Jen, I'm going to turn it to you to let yeah, you sure, talk Jen, about yeah, that. Yeah, dive right yeah, well, in. <laughs> Thank you, Julie. <laughs> Julie welcome. and I have these conversations often about how different words mean things to different people, even in the forecast community. And one of the questions that came up, I think it was last year, we were in the Vortex Southeast meeting and we were listening to these experts on this panel um, talk about, you know, frustrations with their publics about warnings and also discussing sort of the warning period from their, their point of view. And I think, you know, often when we think of a warning, we think of the polygon itself, and the information that attends to that polygon and it going out over time and space and it appearing on cell phones and triggering warnings, uh, uh, sirens and those sorts of things. But I also, when I'm in the forecast office, frequently hear uh, meteorologists talk about, you know, when they're frustrated with how the public has not responded to a warning saying, well, they had three days of warning um, and they've been getting warnings for three days because there was the SPC outlook. And then there was, you know, what we've done on uh, our colleagues have done on television. And then there's, you know, the, the watch period and then there's the warning period. So I think even there's a little bit of um, overlap uh, or muddiness about what warning means precisely when we're thinking about um, different contexts and different people. So thinking about a warning as a polygon is one way of thinking about it. But I think a lot of people uh, might think that the warning period's longer than that because they've been getting messaging that we don't call a warning, but it's functioning as an alert or as a warning to them too. So just one example of how the language we use can, can become complicated too. Uh, could one of you actually very briefly and succinctly explain to the public what the polygon means? Because again, we're talking about it right now on this uh, on this podcast, but there may be someone listening that says, yeah, I've seen that polygon. I don't really know what it means. I mean, we I taught a, a course on this material at the University of Georgia. We read a paper and there were all kinds of perceptions in that study that we read on what people think the polygon is introducing or trying to tell them. So can someone sort of kind of kind of explain in a very simple way what it, what that's trying to convey to people in case they're listening and don't know? Oh, boy. 
Uh, I feel like this is a test of some sort. Um, oh, no. Well, I, I don't mean to put you on the spot. Uh, I, I, but it's, it's the, the point is we have these sort of warning polygons out there, and they're sort of trying to give us a sense of sort of where a particular storm cell that may have a tornado may be traversing over, the, over a period of time. Uh, but what we found is that people see the polygon, and some people thought it meant that the, the threat of the storm is just in the center of the polygon or just at the end of the polygon. So I mean, it's this notion, it's, it's this aerial warning region uh, that may be under potential threat from that tornadic storm. But I, I didn't know if you all had sort of in your work had seen any sort of sort of sort of di- deep dives into sort of whether it's effective as a, as a, as a tool for warning. No, we haven't exactly pursued that kind of stuff. Uh, a colleague okay. of ours, Kevin Ash, has looked at that a little bit especially in conjunction with where the weather community is going in terms of the idea of providing in the future probabilistic tornado warnings. And so he has looked at experimentally placing people in different parts of a polygon, and that is a dichotomous polygon, but then also ones that have more of a gradation of different probabilities of being affected. And he measured whether or not people felt like they were at risk and then also some sort of emotional response, like whether they were afraid. And he found that Yes. Similarly, people tend to, especially I think this is the main finding in that deterministic polygon, that people tend to cluster much more toward the middle um, in terms of where they think the highest risk is. But this is a really big, important, open question. And I want to make a connection here, which is that I was at one of the meetings um, at OU last year where they were discussing more of the physical science of creating these probabilistic tornado warnings and then also some of the associated social science. And a big question that came up is when we start issuing probabilistic tornado warnings, do we still call them warnings? Hmm. Because now you have different, uh, more objectively derived thresholds of risk. Um, versus right now where that tornado warning polygon assumes an even distribution of risk within the polygon. Now, in reality, it probably really isn't equivalent throughout the entire thing. But right now, we assume that. But if we're more explicit about the different levels of risk um, of being affected by a tornado, do we still call it a warning? So I think these are questions that we're um, grappling with, not just now, but also the future of the kind of information that's going to be provided. And those are really important questions to couple the social science research with as the physical science research is evolving. Absolutely. Now, there's one other word, but that I want to move on here because I got a couple of more things that I want to take advantage of both of your amazing expertise. The word is empathy. Uh, Help me help you. What role does empathy play in conversations and warning decision making? And then after we deal with empathy, I want to get your thoughts on whether death, which we often use as a metric, is right or wrong for forecasting. Uh, So empathy and then the use of use of death as a metric. Uh, So who has thoughts on empathy? This was Jen's brilliant idea, so I'm going to turn it to her. (laughs) It was my brilliant idea. Um, I looked at this a lot in my dissertation, um, so I'll take this uh, first, but I know Julie has a lot to say on this as well. Uh, Empathy, I feel like, is already so ever-present in um, the forecast community and then the forecast themselves. It's, you know, as we know in our community, we often say, well, an accurate forecast isn't sufficient to help people understand and uh, their risk and also to save lives. It it takes a lot of communication. It takes a lot of building relationships and building trust. So, you know, in, in both the operational and the broadcast communities, spending a lot of time getting to know both partners, but also the different publics, um, different subsets of those groups, um, building relationships over years that help you understand, you know, their needs, their um 
their thresholds, their tolerances for risk, those sorts of things is a big part of empathy is understanding and listening to the other person. And I think that, um, you know, this plays out quite a bit with uh, impact-based decision support services and the weather service, but I've also seen it, you know, in, in a similar sort of vein with the broadcast community where uh, there's a real um, desire to help people personalize that risk, um, to make sure that the information that you're getting, uh, you know, to the public is the information that's most useful, most actionable to them. So I think there are already instances of empathy um, in our community. We just don't call it that. Um, Julie has a, a lovely way of thinking about empathy that's different than mine. So I'll let her talk a little bit about this. Yeah, the other thing that I would add to this is I think some of this idea that Jen has come up with is born also out of what we talked about a little bit already, which is that we have ideas of what people should do. And that is comes from this idea that there's a, a sort of normative or ideal way of behaving. And so I think when we're talking about empathy, I also like to bring in the idea of curiosity because, and draw on meteorologists because I have a background in meteorology. I grew up wanting to be a meteorologist before, like the moment I could say the word. And I think what drives meteorologists is they're so curious about the atmosphere. They're curious about what it does and why. And then if you combine that atmosphere with how it affects people and extend the idea, what we do in our research is we are curious about what people think and do when they're faced with a hazardous weather situation and why. And so it is a combination of being curious about that, but also being empathetic in the sense that we are understanding those complex situations that they're in about how the information that is being provided about a weather forecast or warning is just one piece of a much bigger, more complex puzzle. So many other ways that if we kind of put ourselves in their shoes and recognize maybe it's not just about this warning information or maybe that they're confused about it for one reason or another, that helps us be both curious about what they're doing, but also empathetic about exactly how they're behaving. And I have to admit, this was a new angle on on the the aspect of the field that I wasn't as familiar with until I, I, I sort of did a little background on some of Jen's work there. This notion of empathy. So I really appreciate you both sort of providing more context on that for the for the listeners. What about this concept of death as a metric? I mean, preservation of life is what meteorologists are trying to do. I mean, it's what we want to do, but. Uh, is it problematic to use this as our, our metric in terms of communication and messaging and warning? So once again, Jen is pointing to me, but I'm going to steal the phrase that she coined, which I think is brilliant, which is that just because somebody died doesn't mean that they behaved badly. And I think you can take the inverse of that and say just because somebody survived doesn't mean that they behaved properly. I think it's so much more complicated than that. And this ties back to some of the other points that we talked about earlier, too, which is that it is a metric that we use, again, because it's really central to the Weather Service's mission. And Marshall, you hit on this before, that meteorologists in all aspects of the field are really passionate about the weather, but they also do it because they're driven by wanting to help people, wanting to save lives. So it makes sense that that's the key thing that we anchor on. It is an important metric, but we have to recognize that helping people understand that there is a risk, helping people understand kind of what the nature of it is, what the chance of them being affected, everything that they can do are all important other things that we can measure. They're much harder to measure. And that's kind of goes back to Jen's point about the need to have a bigger field that does this. Because in epidemiology, similarly, they measure certain kind of quanti quantified ways of, you know, illness or death. But there's so many other aspects that have gotten pulled in in the field of public health that I think we should take a lesson from and start to better understand people's awareness of their risk, whether they understood the information, whether they were able to do something about it, what those things they were able to do are, in addition to just measuring whether or not people survived or died. 
side. Absolutely. And I think, you know, just sort of extending that that concept of measurement too, I often wonder, and it's a difficult question, uh, is measurement the right way to think about uh, how we how we think about success and failure? I think it's, it's uh, understandable why we move to quantitative sort of metrics, lives lost and dollars, um, you know, lost in, in a disaster. Uh, those are easily more easily collectible and counted. So how do we move beyond counting? How do we think about relationships? How do we think about trust? I mean, certainly we could probably break those things down into into numerical, uh, you know, accountings. But what do we miss when we are thinking only about numbers, when we're thinking only about those accountings? And I think this gets back to that notion of empathy and care and concern and curiosity. There are so many um, elements to prediction and forecasting and warning and preservation of life that are not about numbers. It's about something else. And it's really difficult to, when you're in a field that requires justification to bureaucratic institutions um, to move beyond those. But I think internally, it would, I think, behoove our community to not just think about the numeric kind of measurement, but to think about something else, thinking about how to capture and uh, consider relational sorts of elements. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I, I've got, we're, we're getting near the end. I've enjoyed this so much. I can't believe we're close to the end, but I have two more questions. One I'm going to give to Jen and one I'm going to give to Julie. Jen, Jen, your question is, has social media and smartphones helped or hurt messaging? That's for Jen. And Julie, what's next in the implementation of social science research into real-time warnings? So, uh, Jen, let's start with you with a question about social media. Uh, let's let's do about one minute for each of those questions. So, Jen, you go first. Okay, my answer to that is yes. <laughs> it's both helped and hurt. I'm sure. Uh, we, you know, in some of the work that we've done together and looking at um, social media, especially Twitter and Facebook, have seen uh, a lot of potential for social media to extend the reach of messaging, to sort of broadcast what's happening, and also for people to use those spaces as ways to build capacity, uh, as ways to build relationships and to share information in ways that weren't available before. So I think it's filling a vital uh, maybe gap that existed before. Um, but I also can see that there are problems with social media that, you know, you can have uh, fake news out there, that you can have problematic sorts of warnings that are old, uh, that haven't been retired or images that continue to kind of reoccur that aren't relevant to the current weather events. So yeah, I think remove, it does If both. you're warning about weather on social media and it was from two days ago, go in and delete that. Make Get in the habit of doing that if you're listening. I try yes. to do that as well. <laughs> yes. Because well on Facebook, especially stuff comes around like days later that you think is fresh. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So I, I would agree with that. And then, of course, we also have the social meteorologists and the people out there trying to get clickbait by uh, posting a, a hurricane uh, track three weeks out in advance or a snowstorm of four weeks in advance. So that's another of the what I would say negative aspects of the, the whole social meteorologist out there uh, phenomena. But, uh, you know, the last segment here, Julie, what, what's next? Well, so... Actually, I think the one of the points you just raised is part of what's next, which is that a lot of the work that we do is very closely connected to the atmospheric science research. And 
we are able to predict information with longer lead time. And of course, it comes with more uncertainty. So this ties very much to a broader phenomenon that's going on in the community in the weather service called FACETS, which is forecasting a continuum of environmental threats. And the whole notion of that continuum is that we can provide information to people, not just at these sort of discrete points in time, but as the threat evolves. But a big piece of this is that we can provide that information with longer lead times. And how do we convey that in a way that's actually useful to people, given the associated uncertainties? So I think that's a big piece of what's next. And another component that I think is really what we need to start thinking about ties back to what we talked about at the beginning, which is understanding what those impacts are and how to better communicate the risk of these events from the meteorological perspective, but then also what we would call the efficacy piece. What is it that people can and should do with that information across those different space and timescales? So I think those are two giant areas that there's going to be, when you think about all the different weather hazards that we can apply those kinds of issues to, a lot of research that will be part of what's next for quite a while. And that's, that's where we have to end it. I want to thank Dr. Jen Henderson and Dr. Julie DeMuth for joining us at KVCU Studios in Boulder at the University of Colorado. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, it's Dr. Shepard. Yes. It's such a pleasure.